You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, John. Hi, Bob. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. As spring is coming, it's hard not to feel much better. Okay. Well, yeah, it feels that way here too. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are John Mearsheimer, and I think you're getting to the point where you may uh, need no introduction uh, for most people, but just in case, uh, you've long been well-known in academic circles as an eminent scholar in international relations uh, and a, uh, a particularly full-throated and, and strict uh, advocate of the realist perspective, uh, as they call it. Um, you've become known more widely uh lately as a result of the Ukraine war, uh, because you have some, I guess, controversial views in particular that uh, had uh, U.S. foreign policy been conducted more wisely, there might not be a Ukraine war, uh, for example. And in fact, you 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 said uh, some years ago, you said, if we don't straighten out this NATO issue, if we don't give Russia some reassurance that Ukraine will never join uh, NATO, there will be trouble. I think you said uh, Russia will wreck Ukraine, and uh, to some extent, I guess that that is happening. So I want to I want to talk about all that. I want to also talk about China, uh, and uh, at the risk of of oversimplifying your view, I want to uh, explore the fact that you're in well more hawkish on China than Russia. Let let it's safe to say, and 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 look at how that kind of flows from your worldview in in the course of that, I want to look at the question of how we should think of, you know, state actors and state leaders when we formulate U.S. foreign policy. You know, should we think of them as rational actors, strictly pursuing uh, national interests? I think that's pretty close to your view. You've got a book coming out this summer called How States Think, The Rationality of Foreign Policy, co-authored with Sebastian Rosado, that explores this in depth. Uh, people can pre-order that now. By the way, I'm sure I'm sure that fact hasn't escaped your attention, John. That people that people can can go to Amazon uh, and pre-order. Um, so I want to look at that, and I kind of I think I want to challenge your view a little. Uh, the way you look at that question in the context of Russia, uh, whether um, whether strict rational uh, national interest is is enough to assume on on the part of Putin or any other leader, but with that as a somewhat long-winded introduction, let me start with this question. One reason you're controversial is because when you say that U.S. foreign policy is in some sense re responsible for the war, if only in a causal sense, right, in the sense that had it been otherwise, the, the policy been otherwise, there might be no war. People take that to mean that you're... Uh, that you're saying morally or legally or in some other way, the blame lies wholly or mainly with the U.S. or not at all with Russia. And I don't think I've ever heard you address this question explicitly. How you, how, how do you think of the question, kind of moral legal responsibility and its connection to what you could call uh, causal responsibility? My argument is basically that uh, what happened here was the United States and its European allies decided that they were going to try and make Ukraine a bulwark, a Western bulwark on Russia's border. 
Uh, and this really all started in April 2008 at the NATO summit in Bucharest. And the Russians made it unequivocally clear then, and they have made it unequivocally clear since then, that this is unacceptable, that they view this as an existential threat. Nevertheless, we failed to pay any heed to what they said, and we continued to push and push and push. And eventually we got a war. And the big question on the table is who is responsible for this war? Because this war is a disaster. Uh, you know, and we want to know who has blood on their hands. And of course, almost everybody in the West wants to blame the Russians. So they've invented this fairy tale that uh, Vladimir Putin was an imperialist. He was bent on either recreating the Soviet Union or creating a greater Russia. And that Ukraine was the first station on the railway line. And he was going to take Ukraine. Then he was going to take more countries in Eastern Europe. And uh, what we have here uh, is a highly aggressive imperialist. The problem with this argument, which again is the conventional wisdom, is that there's no evidence to support it. There just simply is no evidence. And I have pressed many people who make that argument to show me the evidence, and they can't show me the evidence. On the contrary, there is a superabundance of evidence that the Russians, not just Putin, but his lieutenants as well, considered this to be a situation where NATO was presenting Russia with an existential threat, and they had to deal with it. And therefore, what this war is, it's not a war of aggression in the sense that Putin was interested in conquering Europe uh, to become an imperial uh, czar or some version of Peter the Great. This was a defensive war. It was a war of self-defense, period. Now, uh, one thing you hear in response to that view, and I'm sure you've heard it, is, well, Putin says things that sound as if uh, just national self-interest, national self-defense is not the full extent of his consideration. For example, uh, he was saying as far back as 2008, quote, Ukraine is not a real country. Uh, also, he has, I guess, maybe since the invasion, made some kind of reference to Peter the Great. I, I forget what he said. But, you know, people, of course, who disagree with you seize on that and say, see, he does uh, identify with the imperialist of the past. So uh, although it's certainly true and, and, and I think underappreciated that he dwelt at great length in his pre-invasion speech on NATO, uh, he also says other things that may suggest other motivations and people who disagree with you emphasize those. How do you, how do you handle that? Why, why would he, what does it mean to you that he says that Ukraine has never been a real country? Look, I operate in a world of facts and logic, and I want to see the facts, right? Where are the facts? And what everybody points to is the July 12th, 2021 essay that he wrote. And this is supposed to be the evidence that he didn't think Ukraine was a real nation and that he was hinting that he was going to conquer it. If you read that document, it is manifestly clear that he was saying exactly the opposite. He made it perfectly clear that he recognized Ukrainian nationalism and that Ukraine's future was up to Ukraine. 
There is no evidence in that document that he was interested in conquering Ukraine. And if you look at his behavior in the run-up to the war, what he was trying to do was make the Minsk agreement work so that the civil war in the Donbass would be settled and there would be no need for Russia to get involved. He did not want to invade Ukraine and conquer it. He was not making the argument that your Ukrainian nationalism is a fiction. This famous article that everybody points to was written in the context of the civil war that was taking place in the Donbass. And what Putin was trying to say is that Ukrainians and Russians have effectively been blood brothers and blood sisters forever, and we shouldn't be killing each other in the Donbass. That's what was going on here. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how people can point to that document as the key piece of evidence that he was an imperialist. Yeah, and, and by the way, you know, I happen to find that, you know, he does say as far back as 2008, quote, Ukraine is not a real country. But the earliest example of, of that I have found, uh, which is a little bit before he uh, somewhat famously says it to George Bush, uh, is he says it to Ambassador William Burns. This is in Burns's book, The Back Channel. And the first time he says that, it is in the context of NATO. The conversation starts with NATO expansion, and he's lecturing Burns about what a mistake this would be. And then he starts talking about how, you know, Ukraine is actually a divided country. There's these a lot of, you know, kind of ethnic Russians. I don't know if he uses that term. There's this, there's that. You know, it's, it's a complicated place. It's only then that he actually says it's not a real country. So the very first instance on record of him saying that is by way of explaining why NATO expansion would be uh, a mistake because it would be di divisive for the country of Ukraine uh, itself. So anyway, do, do with that what you will. But my, my I guess what I would add to your model, and I know you're going to resist this uh, because you're, you're restricted here of the, of the rational actor model and the kind of national interest model, um, is that, you know, Putin, like the rest of us, is, is a human being. And he has the issues that all of us have. He thinks he deserves a certain amount of respect. He gets pissed off when you don't give it to him. And, you know, I, I've, I've really tried to learn a lot about the history of U.S.-Russia relations over the last quarter century since the Ukraine war broke out. And I think if you, if you follow the way the U.S. treated him, uh, starting, well, you can go way back, uh, but, but certainly... After 9-11, when he offers the hand of, of friendship and support, and actually Russia makes, really gives us real help in Afghanistan and so on, George Bush continues to ignore his you know, most heartfelt requests, like don't get out of the anti-ballistic uh, missile treaty. Uh, and, and they continue to expand NATO and so on. And it seems to me, I mean, Putin kind of famously has a chip on his shoulder, uh, but even if he didn't, you know, you put yourself in his shoes. Russia is has been this great power. Its stature is obviously declining. That's a sensitive issue psychologically, presumably for Russians generally. Uh, and 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 he, as a, as a as a leader, wants a certain amount of respect. I personally imagine that that plays into the de the deterioration of relations and the ultimate decision to invade Ukraine. So. Um, kind of the abstract question I have for you, I guess, is uh, when you think about what 
a leader is going to do? How is a country going to react to, to if the U.S. does this? Do you at all consider these kinds of things like, you know, human beings, human psychology is this kind of special thing. It's not just, he's not just a computer, A, and then B, he's a particular kind of human being. Maybe he does have more of a chip on his shoulder than other people. Do you, do you factor those things in at all? Sure. But look, I'm a realist. And when I say that I'm a realist, basically that means that my principal lens for looking at the world is a structural one. And who is the leader does not matter in that structural argument. But that structural argument of mine, that realist argument, does not capture all of what is going on. Any theory, realist, liberal, whatever, is a you know simplified picture of reality. Mm-hmm. And certain factors are left on the cutting room floor. And in my theory, individual leaders in domestic politics are left on the cutting room floor. Am I saying that they don't matter at all? Of course not. They do Mm -hmm. matter. My argument is they do not matter that much. So one could make an argument that if someone besides Putin was in power, this would have played itself out in a somewhat different way because leaders do matter somewhat. But my point is that whoever was running the ship of state in Moscow would have done essentially what Putin did. And Bill Burns, by the way, effectively makes this point in his famous memo to Condi Rice, Mm -hmm. where he makes it manifestly clear that it was not just Putin, but all of the Russian elite who felt that uh, Ukraine and NATO was the brightest of all red lines. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, what about uh, in 2014, after the, uh, you know, the well, it's a violent revolution that overthrows a democratically elected president. Putin sees that as a Western-backed, U.S.-backed coup. And there certainly were certain forms of Western uh, encouragement of the, of the, of the protests that, that uh, led to the revolution. You could say at a very minimum, you could say that much. Um, he reacted by seizing uh, Crimea uh, with little or no bloodshed, as I recall, and ultimately giving some support to uh, separatists. And there was, to some extent, an indigenous uh, separatist sentiment, at least among some people in the Donbass. But Russia supported that. Do you think uh, pretty much any Russian leader would have done that? Or was that uh, is that is that degree of risk taking? Uh, explicable only if you add in Putin's psychology? I think that almost any Russian leader would have done what he did. Uh, I think if Putin had to do it all over again, that he would have taken the Donbass then, which is mm-hmm. uh, would have been much easier at the time uh, than it was in 2022. But uh, yeah, I, I think that it was very clear at that point in time uh, that the West was well on its way to making uh, Ukraine uh, a Western bulwark on mm-hmm. Russia's border. And that was just unacceptable. Again, as Burns made perfectly clear. Mm-hmm. And when you say that a lot of this flows from him seeing NATO expansion, and also what you might call the de facto NATOification of Ukraine, as we started sending weapons and having training exercises with them in the several years before the invasion. 
when you say that he sees that as an existential threat, uh, do you mean that it actually was one, there was a real prospect that this would lead to the invasion of Russia or whatever it is exactly he feared, or just that this is a predictable perception for a leader to have, given the way uh, leaders think about national security and what their obligations are to minimize the risk of, of threats to their soil. Well, well, I mean, because it's commonly said, wait a second, we in America never, we don't think of ourselves as ever planning to invade Russia, no matter how close NATO gets uh, to Russian soil. So um, are, are you, what do you say to them? In, in other words, that, uh, go ahead. First of all, you want to understand there's a history here in the Russian case. In 1812, Napoleon invaded and got all the way to Moscow. Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, the 1914-1917 period, uh, the Russians were defeated, which led to the Russian Revolution. And if you ever look at the Brest-Litovsk Peace Treaty uh, that the Russians signed with the Germans, they ended up giving to the Germans a huge chunk of their territory. Mm -hmm. And then in 1941, uh, the Wehrmacht, uh, the Nazis, invaded the Soviet Union uh, and ended up killing 24 million Russians. So the Russians, as you can imagine, are very aware of their history and they're very sensitive about how vulnerable they may be. So that's one point you want to keep in mind. Second point you want to keep in mind is that Russian thinking about NATO expansion is not unusual for great powers. We have the Monroe Doctrine here in the United States. And the idea that a great power, a distant great power, can wander into the Western Hemisphere with military forces is unacceptable to us. We all know this from the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was mm -hmm. just unacceptable for the Soviets to put missiles in Cuba. They weren't talking about launching an invasion into Florida. They were just talking about putting nuclear armed missiles in Cuba. And that was categorically unacceptable. Go back to 1950, when we crossed the 38th parallel in Korea. Remember mm -hmm. the North Koreans invade on June 25th, 1950. We turn the tide, and then we're in a position where we can cross the 38th parallel. Well, if we do that, we start marching up towards the Chinese border, the Yalu River, which separates North Korea from China. The Chinese, unsurprisingly, make it unequivocally clear that this is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And they send a clear signal to us that if we persist in moving toward the Yalu River, right. they're coming in. And they came in. And the Korean War, which lasted from 1950 to 1953, was not a war between Koreans and Americans. It was a war between the United States and China. And mm -hmm. the issue at hand here is the same issue you see at play during the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's the same issue you see at play here in Ukraine. And the fact that most American elites can't get it through their thick skulls that this, was, this is what's going on is truly mm -hmm. remarkable. Mm -hmm. Now, some of us would say that in all of these cases, or at least in some of them, the great powers you refer to are being kind of hypersensitive or hypervigilant. I mean, like when we invaded Grenada during the Reagan administration, I just don't imagine that whoever was whoever had shown up in Grenada that bothered us represented some looming threat to uh, America. So, so I guess my question is, uh, are, are you saying 
that this is actually rational. All, all the behavior you're describing is rational or just predictable, given given the way human beings who run countries and have uh, you know run big, powerful countries think. Does does that distinction make sense to you? I, I mean, yeah. and which is it? Which is it? Are are all Both. these great leaders hypersensitive and and hyper vigilant, or are they just doing what a responsible, purely rational leader would do? Great powers are super vigilant. They mm -hmm. care greatly about their survival. And uh, uh, this is perfectly rational. Look, we live in an anarchic world, which is to say there is no higher authority if you get into trouble. And states go to great lengths to make sure that they're very powerful and that mm -hmm. they're not threatened for good security reasons. If you're weak in the international system, uh, what happens to you is what happened to the Chinese during the century of national humiliation from the late 1840s to the late 1940s. That's what happens when you're weak or what happened to the Russians when the Cold War ended. The Russians, as you know, were adamantly opposed to NATO expansion, but the Russians were very weak. So what did the United States do? It shoved NATO expansion down their throat in 1999. It shoved NATO expansion down their throat in 2004. And then after 2008, it was bent on shoving more NATO expansion down their throat. This is what happens when you're weak in the international system and there's no 911. So in those circumstances, you want to be really powerful and you want to keep other great powers at a distance. Mm -hmm. And this is rational. Surely you understand the logic here. And if you, Bob, were running a great power, you would want to be really powerful and you would want to keep all your rival great powers as far away as possible. No? I want to go on record as saying I would not have invaded Grenada, John. I'm not sure even you would have. No. <laughs> okay. Um, no. I, there we agree. Okay. Uh, and the point is, but the point, is, and yet that kind of excess is predictable is your point. I mean, this is Great powers err on the side of caution. They've gotten in the habit of being able to afford that because they're great powers and push around little countries. And and that's what they do. Now, there is a concept in political science that's relevant here called the security dilemma, right? Which is that, uh, uh, you know, we think of NATO as a purely defensive alliance. Russia views it as offensive. Now, the security dilemma refers to the fact that, uh, well, two things can happen. Russia can Mis be misreading our intentions. That would be an example. But also Russia can can just think, well, you may not intend it uh, offensively, but the fact is, once you've got all the weapons in Ukraine, some future American president could use it offensively. And by the way, uh, in the in the I think it's in the in the Nyet means Nyet telegram from Bill Burns in 2008, uh, he re he records Lavrov, uh, the foreign minister, explicitly saying that saying, we don't doubt your intentions, but we have to think about the future when there's some other president. Now, the uh, the, the the security dilemma, the, the, this, this psychological dynamic is an important, figures into your worldview significantly, presumably, right? Yeah, but just to be clear here, there are two dimensions to the security dilemma. Right. One is that you cannot know whether weapons are offensive or defensive in nature. So in other words, when the Chinese today build up their military forces, they say these are defensive weapons and we're building these weapons to protect ourselves. But from our perspective, 
they can be used for offensive weapons, and therefore we can't buy the logic that they're defensive weapons because you can't distinguish between the two. So mm -hmm. that's point one. The second thing is you cannot determine what intentions are, especially future intentions, as you pointed out a minute ago. Mm -hmm. So if you're a great power looking at a rival, not only can you not tell whether it's weapons or offensive or defensive in nature, you also can't tell whether it has offensive or defensive intentions. So what you do in that situation is you assume worst case. Mm -hmm. And everybody does that. And this is what I call in my book, the tragedy of great power politics. Yeah, it is tragic because uh, it leads to big wars. And this leads us to China. Now, uh, as as I said, you're you're in some sense a China hawk. I mean, you can tell us exactly what your views are and what our position would be. But it seems to me fair to say that, that there's at least superficially a paradox here, which is that with Russia, you say we should uh, look at, at the things that we should have looked at the behaviors of theirs that were predictable given that they are a great power, even if a declining one, maybe especially if it is a, a declining one, uh, and we should accommodate that reality ourselves and shouldn't push too hard. It seems to me with China, you're saying, yes, we, we should look at what China is inevitably going to try to do as a great power, but in this case, we should keep them from doing that. Am I right about that? In other words, China naturally, like all great powers, wants to expand its influence throughout its region, much as we did in the Western Hemisphere with the Monroe Doctrine. Maybe not that extensively. We can argue about what exactly China's aspirations are. But my point is that in this case, you say, no, we should push back. We should not let them do what great powers naturally do. Whereas in Russia's case, we should accommodate uh, what, what we know great powers will do or, and care about. Okay. My argument was not simply that we should accommodate the Russians, we should be allied with the Russians against the Chinese. And it is remarkably foolish from a balance of power point of view to be pushing the Russians into the arms of the Chinese. Now, what's going on here? What you're doing, Bob, is you're treating Russia and China as if they were equally powerful. And the fact Actually, is- Actually, I'm not, but go ahead. <laughs> China is a peer competitor. China yeah. is much more powerful than Russia. China is a threat to dominate all of Asia. It's a threat to become a regional hegemon. And therefore, my view is the United States should focus laser-like on China and go to great lengths to prevent China from dominating all of Asia the way we dominate the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. In the 20th century, the United States faced four countries that threatened to dominate either Europe or Asia. One was Imperial Germany, two was Imperial Japan, three was Nazi Germany, and four was the Soviet Union. We played a key role in putting all four of those countries on the scrap heap of history. The United States does not tolerate pure hegemons, right? We were not going to allow any of those countries, just like we're not going to allow China to become a regional hegemon. And this makes good sense. But if you go over to Russia, there's no chance of Russia becoming a regional hegemon. This country can barely win the war in Ukraine. Do you think that this army is going to conquer Europe? Mm -hmm. They don't have the military capability. So China is a real threat to the United States. 
a threat that the United States actually helped create. And Russia, on the other hand, is not. It's the third great power in the system. It's the weakest of the three. And it should be our ally. We should be using the Russians to help us contain China instead of doing exactly the opposite. Okay. Now, let me make one other very important point. If you look at the situation in China, because of the legacy of World War II and the legacy of the Cold War, we ended up in 1990, right on China's border. So we did not have to cross the Pacific Ocean and get into China's face. We were in China's face when China became a great power, okay? Mm -hmm. The situation with Russia is very different. When the Cold War ended, we were in West Germany. We had to bring East Germany unified Germany into NATO, and then march across the continent to bring all these other countries into NATO. And this is what caused the problem. If we had to march across the Pacific to get up on to the Chinese border, that would have led to huge troubles. It basically would have been a replay of what happened in 1950 when we crossed the 38th parallel. But we had the good fortune that we were there mm -hmm. in 1990. So we don't have to pursue remarkably provocative policies for the purposes of containing China. But you would have advocated them if we hadn't been there? I don't know. I'd have to think long and hard about that. Uh, I mean, I think given the fact that we live in nuclear weapons, uh, we live in a nuclear world, and given the fact that states, great powers, are hypersensitive about their security, getting back to our earlier mm -hmm. discussion, I think you have to be very, very careful what you do. So I'm not sure that I would have advocated that. Okay. So let's talk about why you consider, um, you know, kind of the realization of China's natural aspirations as a great power, as you see them, to be a threat to, I guess, vital American interests, or at any rate, American interests that you think are worth fighting for. Now, I, I gather you wouldn't characterize the threat as it is very commonly characterized today, which is to say that. Uh, China has this uh, aspiration to turn country after country into a clone of itself, you know, an authoritarian autocracy until finally freedom is smothered everywhere. I mean, let me uh, let me read you a recent passage from Ru uh, Walter Russell Mead, who doesn't put it quite that strongly. But but uh, his is kind of a, a, a you know mainstream position today. The Chinese Communist Party has become an expansionist, tyrannical, tyrannical power whose Inordinate ambition, you wouldn't call it inordinate, first of all, since you're saying that China behaves as great powers behave, but anyway, whose inordinate ambition endangers freedom worldwide. America's interests and values both lead us to oppose that ambition. I, I Am I right in thinking you wouldn't make a big deal of the threat to freedom worldwide? I mean, that maybe you don't think it is a threat, or what is your position on the alleged this, threat to freedom worldwide? This is typical liberal rhetoric that is designed to cover up realist behavior. China was a communist power in the 1990s. It was a communist power in the early 2000s. We haven't had regime change in China of any consequence. The ideology hasn't changed. What's changed is the balance of power, period. So you're not worried. And, you know, my understanding is China traditionally hasn't been nearly as preachy as the U.S. has been about how it thinks other countries should conduct their internal business, whether it, whether it thinks they should be liberal democracies or authoritarian autocracies. Now, we, uh, you know, great powers in a certain sense 
have a natural preference for authoritarian autocracy just because sometimes they're more reliable. During the Cold War, which we allegedly were conducting on behalf of freedom, we, of course, sometimes made a point of, 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 of keeping in power reliable authoritarian autocrats, right? Uh, and I'm sure China, in specific cases, uh, prefers to avoid the uncertainty of democracy in a client state or an ally, right? But but is it your view that aside from that, in other words, aside from sharing the approach that the U.S. took in the Cold War, China has no particular desire to convert democracies to autocracies? Yeah, I think that's basically correct. Look, the United States is a crusader state, right? It, it, it's deeply infected with liberal ideology, and it believes that spreading liberalism all over the planet and making everybody look like the United States is the ideal solution for creating a peaceful world. Uh, the best uh, example of this kind of thinking at play was Frank Fukuyama's very famous piece, The End of History. Uh, Frank basically argued that uh, the future was liberalism. We had the wind at our back. And uh, if we could go out, uh, others argued, and facilitate the spread of democracy, make it happen even faster, uh, this would lead to a peaceful world. Uh, so you have this crusader impulse hardwired into the United States that you don't have in China. I believe, by the way, you had it in the early Soviet Union because communism, like liberalism, is a universalistic ideology. It's just very important to understand that. And that's why you had organizations like Comintern that were designed to spread communism all over the planet. So one, I think, can argue that if the Soviets had won the Cold War and communism, not liberalism, looked like the reigning ideology of the future, and some Soviet version of Frank Fukuyama wrote The End of History, you would have seen the Soviets during the unipolar moment behaving much the way the United States did. If at some point in the future, and let's hope this never happens, the Chinese become a unipole, I do not think in that situation that they're going to run around the world trying to make every country look like China and engage in a crusade similar to the one that we engaged in during the unipolar moment. Okay. If I can make one more point, Bob, I think that if a great power, and here we're talking mainly about the United States, lives in a bipolar world, as we did during the Cold War, or in a multipolar world like we did do today, that the United States has to behave in a realist fashion and cover up its behavior with liberal rhetoric. This is Walter Russell Mead. He's, he's providing right. liberal rhetoric. You know, oh, the oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, well, but, every, he's, a man's got to make a living, John. Yes. Um, but during the unipolar moment, if you think about this, during the unipolar moment, there were no other great powers in the system. So there was no great power competition. So you could take a holiday from realism during the unipolar moment and you could pursue a liberal foreign policy. And that's why people like me and other realists argue that we pursued a policy of liberal hegemony during the unipolar moment. It was not a realist foreign policy. It was a liberal foreign policy. And we had that luxury because we were in unipolarity and great power competition was off the table. And what's happening now is that great power competition is back on the table. So. Needless to say, we are acting in a very realist way. And just one other point, if you want to just continue on this, just think of Joe Biden. 
Joe Biden, when he was head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Joe Biden, when he was vice president under uh, Barack Obama, was in favor of engagement with China. Mm-hmm. He wanted to have very good relations with the Chinese and help the Chinese economy grow. When he became president, he adopted Donald Trump's policy of containment. Remember, when Trump came to office, he flushed engagement down the toilet bowl and adopted a hard-nosed containment policy towards China. Well, Joe Biden, as president, has actually doubled down on Trump's containment policy. The -hmm. Chinese will tell you that Biden is tougher on them than Trump was. So you see that Biden has undergone a fundamental transformation, which can be explained by the move from unipolarity to multipolarity. Well, uh, there are different explanations, uh, but but uh, I, I mean, you, of course, applaud what he's doing. Uh, I'm not so sure I do. Uh, why don't you um, actually quick, quick little uh, example of that. This uh, the chip, the chip sanctions thing, which uh uses American leverage to prevent advanced microchips from uh, being exported to China, not not just by the U.S., but by other Western powers, and apparently will prevent advanced chip-making machinery from being exported from, I think it's the Netherlands that is the leader in this. Lithography. Yeah. Um, I I would think that might make China think, you know, what we need is to uh, be running Taiwan, which has the most advanced uh, chip-making stuff in the entire universe, right? I mean, I I can imagine I can imagine that calculation. Am I am I crazy to think that ironically this kind of thing could be encouraging the invasion of Taiwan? Well, I think they understand that if they were in a position to conquer Taiwan, uh, that Taiwan's chip making capability would be destroyed uh, before they got there. Uh, I mean, think by, by the U.S. by the U.S. Of course. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a pretty radical thing to start bombing a country you say you're defending, but, you know, <laughs> it's possible. Well, but, but, but we're assuming that the United States can't defend it. Yeah. Right. Right. We're, we're assuming we, we are. That's one of the reasons we are going to defend Taiwan for exactly because of the chip thing. Yeah. And it's also a reason we're moving some of that capacity to the U.S. Uh, so that if we if we didn't, uh, if we lost Taiwan, it wouldn't be as catastrophic. But why don't, what I want to drill down on is, OK, so if if uh, if China doesn't pose a threat to freedom everywhere, what is the threat to the U.S. that you think it poses? Let, let's assume they succeed in securing uh, possession of the of the two or three disputed you know, island chains or kind of manufactured island chains that they've kind of uh, synthesized, you know, or whatever, um, you know, presumably they still have an interest in preserving uh, freedom of transit because their economy depends so heavily on, on imports and exports. Uh, what, what is it, what is it you fear if, if they, if they, in other words, if they act the way we acted with respect to the Western hemisphere, um, which to my mind didn't obviously pose a threat to any, some imagined great power uh, to the eastern or the west of the western hemisphere, but what what would be the threat to us if China turned its area into more of a sphere of influence? Well, if you dominate a region the way the West, the United States dominates the western hemisphere, uh-huh. you are free to roam around the planet. 
with your military forces because you don't face any threats in your backyard. I mean, you know, as an American, and I know as an American, we face no threats, military threats in the Western Hemisphere, none. Mm -hmm. This explains in large part why we have military bases all over the planet, why we have military forces all over the planet, why we're interfering in the politics of countries all over the planet. And from a Chinese point of view, and from a Russian point of view, this is not a good situation. The Chinese are not happy about the fact that the United States is sitting on their doorstep. The Russians are not happy about the fact that we're building this really powerful alliance right on their doorstep and moving a military base into Poland. We're here to for we've had a military right. base in Germany, right? But the United States can do this because it's free to roam. Mm-hmm. We do not want China to be free to roam. We do not want China to have zero or hardly any security problems in Asia and be free to roam around the planet, especially into the Western Hemisphere. So what do you think it's going to do in the Western Hemisphere? So your concern is actually not what it's going to do in its realm per se. You don't think that America has vital interest in preventing it from throwing its weight around a little there. Your concern is that that would free it up to to do what? I mean, to bomb Pearl Harbor or what? I don't, I don't, uh, I, I, I honestly don't understand what plausible thing China is going to do with the use of physical force near America's borders. Well, it could form a military alliance with Mexico or Canada. Why, would it, could, why uh, would it do that? I mean, uh, why does the United States have a military alliance with Japan? Why does the United States have a military alliance with Poland? Well, as a as an historical matter, what, it's it's because great. it's because of World War II and the subsequent perception that we were in a global uh, struggle with communism. I mean, what 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 global struggle does China think it's? Uh, well, I mean, I grant you that World we do. World War II, Bob, ended in 1945. Right, but I mean, that's why we were in Japan as an historical matter because it ended. That so we had the troops there. Is my point? But we didn't leave. We didn't. Leave I understand the that. War ended. I understand that. Go to Europe instead of instead of maintaining the status quo. We moved eastward toward Russia. And but you don't think that was a particularly good idea. So why would China think it's a good idea to do something comparable? I might not have thought it was a good idea, but we did it, and that's all that matters. And well, if you're the Russians and you're the Chinese or you're the Americans, you worry about this. Well, but I, I thought you. I thought your basic model was that states are rational actors. So it seems to me it's not quite enough for you to say powers have done this in the past because that might be irrational. Uh, why? So if you're going to stick with with the rational actor model, why is it rational for China to I don't know uh, have the aspiration of taking over San Diego or something? I, again, I can't. I really can't imagine what you think they want or or what concessions would they want to extract by having a military alliance with Mexico. I mean, the one thing I can imagine is they, they'd want us to shut the hell up about how we think they should run their country. A lot of countries would like that. Uh, but but um, I'm not sure they would ally with Mexico <laughs> for, for that purpose. What do you think they would try to extract from us? What do you think they would ultimately want? Well, I mean, it, it's possible that they could put missiles in uh, but Mexico. But why? Why? Why did the Soviets put missiles in Cuba? Uh, 
because there was, because as you said yourself, they had an ideology of, of spreading their ideology throughout the world, A, and actually, uh, more consequentially probably, they understood we had threats at their borders. We had missiles in Turkey. And in fact, the agreement was we took the missiles out of Turkey and they took the missiles out of Cuba under the table. That was actually the deal. But um, so there were reasons uh, for that in that context. But you said yourself, China does not have aspirations to engage in a global ideological struggle. It's not a, it doesn't have to be a global ideological struggle. It can be a balance of power struggle. I mean, I don't yeah, think I, I mean, Soviet U.S. competition was driven by ideology in any meaningful way. It was driven by balance of power politics. Stalin was a realist par excellence, as were his successors. And the reason they put missiles in Cuba had little to do with ideology and everything to do with the balance of power. Right. And the, the but, fact. Yeah. Look, let's just go to Ukraine for a second. What the Russians worry greatly about and still worry greatly about is the Americans putting missiles in Ukraine. And you say, that's not going to happen. Well, the Russians will tell you we have missiles in Romania and we have missiles in Poland. And those missiles, although they're said to be for purposes of defending against Iran, can be used offensively against Russia. Take the question of Sevastopol, which is a very important Russian naval base. They leased, they leased until until sure. 2014 Sevastopol, which is in the Crimea, from the Ukrainians. Right? Their great fear was that if Ukraine became part of NATO, Sevastopol would become a naval base, and that would threaten them and their control of the Black Sea. Would, would become a NATO a NATO naval base. Yes, I, yes, right, yes, right. That was just totally to NATO naval yeah. base. In fact, and Putin says that in 2008, by the way. I think it's 2008. Long before, uh, you know, the, the 2014 revolution, he says, uh, imagine uh, Na uh, Sevastopol as, as a, a, a NATO naval base. So so I, I accept all that. But but I mean, back to, here, here's a way to uh, frame the question more abstractly. OK, let's uh, posit that states are rational actors. Presumably, that means they are capable of rationally playing non-zero-sum games, right? Like where there's a potential win-win outcome and a potential lose-lose outcome. An example would be the fact that we did uh, reach, uh, you know, arms control treaties with Russia. We realized, look, we're both, we're, it is lose-lose. We're both spending a ton of money on arms. We've already established deterrence. Uh, so that, that's an example of respecting uh non-zero-sum logic, as, as are various agreements designed to prevent accidental nuclear war. So, so I assume you accept, right, that uh, rational actors will recognize when relations are becoming more non-zero-sum and act accordingly? Of course. And I think the best example to support your point is the uh, nuclear non-proliferation regime that the United States and the Soviet Union created during the Cold War. Uh, starting, uh, you know, in, in the late 1960s with the NPT and then in the mid-1970s with the Nuclear Suppliers Group. I think the two great powers during the Cold War worked together. They cooperated uh, to effectively shut down proliferation in a big way. And uh, so there's no question that you can have a fundamentally competitive relationship uh, that has different dimensions where both sides have an incentive to cooperate, and they do cooperate. 
So you have cooperation and competitive and competi- cooperation and competition side by side. But the key point you want to keep in mind is that the relationship is fundamentally competitive, as it was with the U.S. and the Soviets during the Cold War. Okay, but uh, if I could convince you that relations among nations are actually more non-zero sum now than they were 50 or 100 years ago, and that, that they're getting more that way, and I can elaborate on why I think that's the case, then presumably you would acknowledge that we shouldn't expect uh, state actors, including great powers, to act exactly as they've acted in the past, because that that was a different context uh, with a with a greater degree of uh, uh, with a with a higher ratio of zero sum to non zero sum dynamics. I mean, an obvious example is we are more economically intertwined with China than we were with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Uh, that 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 changes the logic of things. Uh, the nuclear threat, uh, cont- there's the threat of nuclear war breaking out uh, between us and China. That's a non-zero-sum game. There's all these other things, you know, um, climate change, uh, the, the, the advance of biotechnology, which means that in principle, some bad actor anywhere could uh, create a uh, bioweapon that would spread throughout the whole world. These are all problems where it's in the, because they're non-zero-sum, it's in the rational it's in the interest interests of nations uh, to actually cooperate with other nations. And correspondingly, uh, the costs are greater if there's some war or even uh, a cold war that reaches such depths that they can't cooperate on these these issues. Right. So, um, you know, do, do you do you not think that these kinds of things, in particular, the degree of economic integration between China and the world? That these fa- that these would factor into China's calculations and make it behave at least somewhat differently than the U.S. and the Soviet Union behaved during the Cold War. Well, I, I think if you talk about economics, right, there is an intense competition between the United States and China taking place involving high-end technologies, sophisticated technologies. So the emphasis there is not on cooperation. The emphasis is on competition. There is much more. At the same time, the cost of a breach would be, a true breach would be huge, right? Uh, 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 An economic breach, like the end of, you know, what's happening with us in Russia now? Because there's a war, there's no trade. And, and, And that would be devastating to China's economy, I think. Well, you use the example of the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. The example I would use is the European great powers before World War I. By all accounts, there was a huge amount of economic interdependence in Europe in 1914. Uh, and nevertheless, you had this security competition between the Triple Alliance on one side and the Triple Entente on the other side. And the end result is that in August of 1914, a war broke out, World War I despite all of that economic interdependence. So if you're relying on economic interdependence, right, to produce peace, you want to be very, very careful. And again, I want to emphasize that economic interdependence today is not all about cooperation. There Mm -hmm. is a heavy uh, amount of competition involved with high-end technologies. And with regard to nuclear weapons, I would certainly not argue that nuclear weapons don't matter and make the world today somewhat different than the world looked like before 1945. I mean, you and I would agree on that for sure. 
But I would note to you that what you get at the nuclear level, and you can see it happening now, is not so much cooperation, but competition. Yeah, the United States and the Soviet Union cooperated to put together a non-proliferation regime, and that was all for the good. But they waged an intense security competition at the nuclear level during the Cold War. And it's already happening between the United States and China, and it has been happening between the United States and Russia. So nuclear weapons, although they certainly matter and they have an effect on the nature of international politics to some extent, uh, they don't take that fundamentally competitive element uh, off the table. No, no. The, uh, life is always a mixture of zero-sum and non-zero-sum. I do think you can argue uh, convincingly that the ratio of non-zero-sum to zero-sum in international relations has grown as a result of technological evolution. People often bring up the World War One example you brought up in Norman Angel's book, and that is, I think, mischaracterized as predicting there wouldn't be war. I think what he said was it wouldn't be rational to have war given that degree of economic entanglement. In any event, uh, I assume you think that it would have been nice to avoid World War One, right? I, I mean, uh, th that in fact, what World War One demonstrated was that relations were highly non-zero-sum. World War I was lose-lose, certainly on a human scale, in terms of the actual lives lost and people maimed and people bereaved on both sides. It was a lose-lose outcome. So whatever led to it was uh, a badly played non-zero-sum game. Uh, moreover, its aftermath helped lead to World War II. Um, so, you know, you might say, well, World War I, it's just great powers acting the way they act. And, and now it seems to me you're saying with China, well, uh, you know, uh, great power is going to be great powers. China's going to want what it wants. We're going to try to deny it. Well, okay, but that led to World War I. I mean, shouldn't we, uh, you know, I, I, I usually hate the use of the word agency for various reasons, but shouldn't we try to exercise some agency here and, and maybe do something other than what you say is almost inevitable among great powers? Well, I want to be clear. I'm not arguing that war between the United States and China is inevitable. I've long said that what was inevitable was an intense security competition, and there was a serious possibility of war. But I, I want to go back to your World War I case. You're, you're equating rationality with outcomes. And you're saying you got World War I, it was a disaster, and therefore the decision to start World War I was irrational or non-rational. I think that's a mistake. And as Sebastian Rosado and I make clear in the book, uh, you cannot equate outcomes with rationality. So that brings us to the question of why did the Germans start the war? And I do believe the Germans started the war, right? And mm -hmm. it was basically a preventive war. And what the Germans saw was that the Russians were recovering from their defeat in 1904, 1905 at the hands of the Japanese. They were growing economically and militarily. The French were taking certain steps to improve their military capability, as were the British. And they were forming an alliance, the Triple Entente, Britain, France, and Russia. And Germany's relative power position in the system was decreasing. And the Germans were really scared. They felt they were surrounded and the future meant uh, a shifting balance of power against them. And therefore, they went to war. 
it's not altogether unlike what Putin did as a defensive war. It was a preventive war. It was to prevent the balance of power from shifting against them. Now, you can say that that is non-rational, but I don't think it's non-rational. I think it made sense from the German point of view, and I think it made sense from Putin's point of view. How it all works out, whether Putin fails or whether he succeeds, tells you nothing about whether it was rational, in my opinion. Yeah, not in and of itself. Uh, so listen, um, we have, uh, we've been talking for about an hour. Uh, one thing uh, I commonly do on this podcast is, um, you know, tape an hour or so for the, for the regular uh, public audience and then have an overtime session. Uh, which you've been kind enough to agree to stick around for, which is available to paid subscribers to the Non-Zero Newsletter. Um, and that's uh, their, their, their uh, support is what helps these conversations keep happening. Uh, it's easy to become one if you're listening on a podcast app. Uh, you can just go to the show notes. There's a link that takes you to the Non-Zero uh, Newsletter on Substack, or you can go there uh, on your desktop computer, become a paid subscriber. And, and then the post at Substack uh, that corresponds to this conversation. So the full conversation will be open to you. And moreover, if you go to the audio player in that post, in the upper right, there are instructions for setting up your own uh, special podcast feed that will thereafter have all the bonus content, uh, including the uh, the Parrot Room on Friday and all, all and so on. Uh, and uh, and of course, all the, all the uh, paywalled written content on the newsletter is available too. John, thanks for enduring that little commercial. Before we go, I want to do two things before we move into this overtime conversation. Uh, I want to let you say anything that you you want to make sure uh, the people who don't listen to the rest of the conversation here, just to clarify anything uh, you think uh, needs clarifying. And I also want to ask you, maybe we should start with this, uh, just, you know, we can explore this in the overtime, the logic behind this, uh, but uh, so you don't you don't have to elaborate, but would you advise that if China invades Taiwan, the U.S. Uh, come to China's assistance in a military way? In other words, get into a war with China. I think we will go to Taiwan's defense, period. Do, do you advise and that? I, do you, do you yeah, advise I, that? I, I think we should. Okay. And then is there anything else you want to say about uh, what we've talked about so far, just to put a punctuation point on anything, clarify anything? Not really, because you asked excellent questions and gave me plenty of time to sort of articulate my views. And so I don't think there was any subject that we talked about where I was unable to say everything uh, that came to my mind uh, about the issue we were talking about. Okay, great. Uh, before we do go into overtime, again, you've got this book coming out called How States Think. You've got... Uh, a number of uh, well-known books people can also check out, like The Tragedy of Great Power Politics and, and so on. Um, and you write for Foreign Affairs and so on. So people should Google you. Uh, okay, so thanks uh, to people who stuck around for this part. Um, and we will uh, see you next time.